Guys, we are in the Sermon on the Mount. We saw last week that Jesus is Messiah, and Messiah comes, uh, among other things, as teacher. Isn't that wonderful, those of you who are in the teaching profession? The Messiah is a teacher. And boy, is he ever a teacher. And we've seen that Matthew collects for us five uh, sermons of Jesus, which summarize what any disciple of Jesus needs to have in order to walk with him faithfully. So at the end of the, uh, of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells us to go out and make disciples, teaching them, whatsoever, uh, uh, you know, teaching them whatsoever I've commanded you. And what is it that he's commanded? Well, there you have it, the five sermons. Therefore, when we disciple people, you can look at these five sermons and see that's a great place to start. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, it's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So if you'll turn there to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to launch right in. And uh, there are several sections of this sermon, as we saw last week. We're going to take up the first section, a very famous section, called the Beatitudes. Now, it's very interesting. We don't think about it because we've seen it uh, for so many years that it kind of comes to second nature to us, and we don't ask the question anymore. But it's a good question to ask. Why does Jesus start with the Beatitudes? What are the Beatitudes? They're uh, blessings, when you go to worship in your service, if you, if you go to a Christian church somewhere, uh, what's the last thing you do? You get a blessing. You get a benediction at the end. Jesus starts with benediction. Seems a little strange, doesn't it? Because even with Moses, you remember a couple of years ago when we were studying Deuteronomy, what comes at the end of Deuteronomy, the end of Moses' speech? These wonderful blessings and benedictions upon each of the tribes of Israel, naming them one by one. But here Jesus starts with blessing. Well, there are different theories on this, but it seems probably the most obvious is that one of the key things Jesus wants to do in his teaching is to bless you for heaven's sakes, not to curse you. It's to help you, to encourage you, to include you, not to condemn you. And so often when we hear the teaching of Jesus, of course, it's so lofty, it's actually perfect, and it calls us to such a high standard, the first thing we do is start beating ourselves in the back. Oh, woe is me. I'm not good. How could I possibly be a friend of Jesus? I'm so bad. First thing he does is blesses you. He gives you a benediction. Now, there is a model for this if you think about it in the Old Testament. What's the first psalm? Blessed is the man who does not stand in the counsel of the wicked and so on. Walk in the counsel of the wicked. So the blessing comes at the beginning of the Psalms as well. The righteous man is being blessed. He will flourish like a green tree. But the, the wicked man will not. He will disappear just as the chaff is blown away. So there is some precedent for it in the Psalms. But primarily it's sort of a reversal of the way things normally go. And Jesus comes about blessing. Another thing to realize is that um, a... Uh, Jesus, as you know, as Messiah, is prophet, priest, and king. Messiah means anointed one. And in the Old Testament, there were three offices that were anointed, prophet, priest, and king. So Jesus is each one of those. A priest became a priest and entered his ministry at 30 years of age. How old is Jesus here? 30 years of age. He's just turned 30. He has just been baptized. And some would say, one of the meanings of that baptism is that he's officially anointed, set apart for his priestly ministry. And as you know, in the Old Testament, one of the things a priest was assigned to do, Numbers chapter 6, is to lift up his hands 
and bless the people. That was a priestly assignment. And then God gave the priest the benediction which he was to pronounce upon Israel. And God says, when you pronounce this, they will be blessed. And that's where we get the famous Aaronic from Aaron, Aaronic benediction. Uh, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's from Numbers chapter 6. That was an assignment of the priestly caste to be sure Israel got its blessing. And here Jesus enters into priestly ministry upon his baptism. First thing he does is to offer a benediction. Now I'm, I'm very sympathetic with this because one of my favorite moments every Sunday uh, at the end of a service is when I get to pronounce a benediction upon God's people. Now the scriptures teach us in the New Testament that all of God's people are priests so that uh, we believe, in, as, as Martin Luther said, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. So technically there's no, there's no real uh, difference between clergy and lay. We're all one people and we all have the power to bless people. But I'm just glad that in Presbyterian circles we let the preacher do that because <laughs> I get to do it every Sunday morning. It is a great honor in the name of God to pronounce to these people that they are the blessed people of God. And that's a priestly assignment. Now, let's think about how that plays out in our lives. We're going to look at these in detail in just a moment. But let's talk about just the, what, just the meaning of blessing. We do believe in the priesthood of all believers. And therefore, every one of us is to be a blesser. And there are certain things that go along with blessing. Let me just give you about three of them. Three components of a real blessing. And you need to be giving this to people all around you. First of all, your wife. Secondly, your children. Thirdly, if you have grandchildren or extended family, you should be giving it there. Fourthly, you should be giving it to anybody who is under your leadership. They should be blessed by you all the time. How do you do that? Number one is that you simply love them and they know if they're being loved. You really care for them. You have them in your heart. You pray for them. You just simply love them and that comes across to them. Secondly, when you're blessing someone, you take something of virtue or a value about that person and you feed it back to them. You'll notice that in Moses' blessings in Deuteronomy, at the end of Deuteronomy, we covered this a couple of years ago, for those of you who are here. Moses took each of the tribes and he fed back to them something that God had put into their lives. And so, for example, with your sons and your daughters, you pick out something about them. Honey, your character is really outstanding. And you may not know that uh, all of us can see that in you, but we really can. Or sometimes this should often happen, actually. If you're, if you're following Christ and you're rearing young children, by the time they're 10 or 12, you're going to find that they have extraordinary wisdom. I mean, I was amazed with my kids. I, I wasn't a Christian when I was a kid. I went to church, and I'm grateful for that, but I wasn't converted till 25. So when my kids were in junior high, they were correcting me on things. They were making statements. They were really astonishing. And what those kids need is feedback from you. Let them hear what you see in them. I have a friend who went to the mission field and had a wonderful mission career. 
but he, he got started a little late, you know, in his mid-30s. Most, most missionaries will start in their 20s. It's so much easier to acquire language and to undergo all the cultural assimilation that takes place when you're a little younger. But he started off in his, in his mid-30s. He went back to his old church, and there one of the old, old, old elders came up to him, and he said, Sonny, I knew when you were a boy that you were going to really be a fine Christian leader and a missionary. And my friend told me, I sure wish he had told me that 40 years ago. It would have saved me a lot of time. We just, sometimes we fail to tell young people what we see in them. And one of the most important things, if you, uh, older guys, if you're working with teenagers or college-age students and you see something in them, you need to tell them. If you see in them the ability to teach or to shepherd people or to care for people or whatever it is you see in them, you need to let them know what you see. Because if you can think back that far, you don't, you didn't actually know what you had. Somebody had to call that out and label it for you. A blesser does that. A ble- that's called encouragement. You're just simply encouraging. Now, you can't, you can't say something positive about someone that's not true. That's called flattery. And that's just simply to uh, elevate yourself in their view. That's, that's self-centered. Flattery is. But encouragement is telling positive truths about someone that you see there. So that's the second thing. First thing is you just simply love them and value them. Secondly, you encourage them with the virtues and values and assets that you see in their lives. Now, thirdly, what you do when you bless somebody is you commit yourself to them. So basically, you're, you're saying not only do I think that you're valuable, not only do I have an affection for you, but I'm committing my life to you. And dads, this is so vital. Uh, that your children know that they have your commitment. Uh, yesterday, uh, we had uh, Pam Hickson's funeral. And uh, Doug Hickson, who usually sits right there, uh, was home in his own sick bed, was even unable to be at his wife's own funeral. But one thing I mentioned about Pam, to her credit, was that before I ever really got to know Pam, I got to know her two teenage kids who are now in their 30s. And if you know those kids, uh, you know those are blessed kids. Do I need to explain it? You know what a blessed kid is. A kid who feels comfortable in his or her own skin, who with all the awkwardness of being a teenager still knows that they're loved and, ha- and feels secure inside. Someone who is gentle and kind but also firm in their convictions. Just You know those kids. You, 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 it doesn't take but about... 30 seconds to know that you're in the presence of a blessed child. And before I ever got to know Pam, I I got to know Douglas and Emily. And I knew behind those two kids, there was a mother roaming around here somewhere that had done a pretty good job. So she blessed them. And what she did, as I explained yesterday, she committed herself to their welfare. Uh, Very interesting. If you talk to Emily as a blessed child, she'll say, here's... Here's what my mama did for me. She didn't allow anything to attack my self-esteem. She was constantly, ferociously defending anything that would undermine who I am as a human being. And so uh, in college, when she had a, a really tough experience one day, you know what Pam Hickson did? She got on a plane immediately, flew to Richmond, the University of Richmond, picked up her daughter, took her to a bed and breakfast, until she was there long enough to convince her that the guy who had hurt her feelings was a total idiot, and then she got back on her plane and came back home. 
because she was blessing her child. She wanted that child to know that she had value, that she was loved, that she was special. And I asked Emily this question. I said, so your mom convinced you that she actually thought you were special. She wasn't just telling you that, but she actually thought you were special. And Emily said, yes. And I said, did she convince you that not only did she think that you were special, but that you were special? She said, yes. Now, that's, that's what a blessing parent does. You, you convince that child that, of course, not only by virtue of creation, but by virtue of redemption, they are special. They're included in the family of God, and they're loved by God, and they're loved by you, and they have your commitment. Now, what does that commitment mean? Well, just what I described, the commitment of your pouring into someone else's self-esteem. And so often, parents allow their self-esteem to be affected by their children. And what they're concerned about is that their children reflect well on their self-esteem. And that we have these subtle and nefarious ways in which we're trying to derive blessing from our kids. You know, I joke with my kids and I say, let me remind you, your all's job is to entertain your parents. You know? Well, they know I'm kidding because that's not their job at all. That's my job. Not just to entertain them, but to bless them. And in order to be a parent, gentlemen, it takes, obviously, great self-discipline. You, you must guard your spirit from trying to get anything from your kids. And, of course, you're not trying to get anything material. Typically, what you're trying to get is your affirmation. You're trying to get them to tell you that you're a great dad or something like that. It takes great discipline to stay focused on what your task is. You're a blesser. You're a benedictor. And you're going to give blessing to your children by letting them know that you're committed to them. And you all know, if you're a son, that one of the greatest blessings that your dad can give you is a good reputation. And, of course, he, he doesn't have a good reputation just because he was thinking about you, but it, that's a side benefit. But you also know as a son, some of you have kind of followed your parents in business or your dad helped by investing in your business or something like that. You just know financially. You know it makes a difference to have your last name. Your dad treated you differently than he would treat anybody else. Your dad would dip down, even in risking his own estate every once in a while, in order to invest in you. And that's what it means to be his kid. You had his favor. You had his attention. You had his investment. You had his protection. So when you bless someone, you invest in them. You are committed to them financially, physically, emotionally, every other way. Now, those are the, the, some of the major components of blessing, and that's what makes a blessed person. And I, I, I've told you before, my, my dad was a believer, but he's what I call a Luther believer. He was really rough around the edges. I've told you, he would tell me some jokes after I became a Christian. I said, Dad, stop that, please. I mean, uh, I said, and then he would tell me these, these jokes after I became a preacher. I said, Dad, there are two problems with these jokes. Number one, I can't forget them. And number two, I can't use them. <laughs> so please stop. That was my dad. But I've also told you that with my dad, uh, I'm just so grateful. I knew he believed in me. I knew he, I knew he was proud of me. Uh, I knew there was really no reason to be, but I had him fooled. And nonetheless, I, I had his blessing. I had his favor. Now, some of you know intimately what that means. And all of a sudden, gratitude for your daddy rises up in your heart. 
Some of you are saying, boy, I wish I'd had that. And I wish you had too. It does make a lot of difference in your life. But let me tell you something. That's the reason this is here. Because whether you've had blessing from your earthly father or not, Jesus comes into your life today to say, I want to bless you. I want to tell you, number one, I really love you. You're my people. You're my family. And I love you. And that's what he's doing here. Starting off with a blessing. He's saying, number two, I see some virtues in you. Now, we all know whatever virtues were there came from him. By nature, in us there is no good thing, says the psalmist. And Paul quotes it in Romans 3. There is no good thing in us. We can take credit for nothing. But God puts things into us. And Jesus is saying to us, I see those things. And I value those things. And thirdly, in that commitment, He blesses us. He says, I am completely committing myself to you. And that's part of the blessing. Now, there's another component of blessing I want to add. In the Old Testament, there's a fourth thing that you'll get in blessing. That is that whenever people are blessed, or almost always, there's a touching. You know, it's uh, when, uh, when uh, uh, Isaac was uh, blessing, he put his hand under the thigh of his son. Uh, I don't know what in the heck that meaning is. Sounds a little suspicious to me, but nonetheless, there was a touching. And we often put our hands on shoulders or put our hands on someone's head. When our little children come forward, they're not receiving communion because they're not of age, but they come forward with their parents. The elders who are serving communion just lay their hand on the child's head and just bless them. Lord bless you. Lord bless you. So there's almost always touching. So it's, it's almost here as though Jesus is touching us. He's saying, I want you. You're included. And here, this, this great concept that we all long for in our hearts, I give you my favor. You know, if, if, you, if you read any book about men and why that we're so screwed up, there is at the heart of it often the male problem is fundamentally an absence of that blessing. And a lot of our crazy behavior, our drug addictions, alcohol addictions, our acting out, our rule-breaking, our sexual uh, infidelities, um, our language, our abusive people, a lot of the stuff that men do that are dysfunctional, it comes from this hole in our heart. It's the male dysfunction. It's the absence of believing that you have the favor of your Father. So, what does Jesus do in His first sermon? Right off the bat, He's addressing that hole in our hearts and saying, I want you to be men of favor. I want you to be men who know that there's someone infinitely stronger than you are who is committed to you. I want you to know there's somebody who notices when you walk with God and who is appreciative of it and who commends you for it. I want you to know you're a blessed group of men. That's where, the, that's where Jesus starts. It's an amazing thing. Well, with that, let's look at it and turn your Bibles into Acts chapter 
Acts. That was last year. <laughs> Boy, it's tough getting old. I'm telling you what. It just all life just starts to run together. You know, you call your children by their dog's name and everything. It's just it's terrible. It's terrible. It's embarrassing. All right, Matthew chapter five. We're in verse three. Jesus says, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn." For they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Wow. Now... Obviously, when we look at these blessings, we're going, wow, man, I'm supposed to be pure in heart and I'm supposed to be merciful and got to be humble and meek and, and, and be hungry and thirsty for righteousness all the time. Man, I'm not a blessed person. Well, look, um, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment, the standards that are implied in this text, but that's not the main message. Here's the main message. Jesus is basically saying to his church, Look, if you've really entered into the life of God, if the life of God has really entered into the soul of man, here's what begins to happen to you. There's a certain poverty of spirit. There's a certain mournfulness. There's a meekness. And then there's a hunger and thirst that doesn't quite seem to get satisfied. There's, there's something that happens to you when you get converted. And sometimes you get a little afraid of yourself. You know, I'm just not as happy as I used to be. Or I'm just not as triumphant as I used to feel or these kinds of things. And Jesus is simply saying, look, when the fruit of conversion has begun to take place in your life, when you begin to feel and look like a real disciple, I want to tell you something. You're blessed. You are this way because of God's Spirit in you. And he has completely invested himself in you and committed himself to you. You're the blessed people. So what Jesus is actually doing is describing what a real believer is like and is saying that believer is a blessed person. He has God's favor. He has God's encouragement. He has God's total commitment to him. So basically what Jesus is doing is just describing converted people and saying they're the people who have the favor of God. Now, that's the main message in it. Now, we can look at some corollaries that, hey, this is the way God's people are, so let's, let's get on with it. You know, sometimes we ain't so meek, are we? Uh, I remember I came out of uh, preaching one Sunday. This is about 20 years ago, and the, my text had to do with humility. Maybe, maybe it was in 1 Peter chapter 5 or something. And so I preached this sermon on humility, and one of the deacons, who is a recovering alcoholic, you know those people are always very direct. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. People in recovery, they just say anything because they say it to each other in their AA group. So they just say it to you that way. So this recovering alcoholic deacon comes up to me and he says, Pastor, that was a good sermon, especially since that's not your strong suit. truth hurts oh it hurts well so we can look at these things and we say well I ain't so meek yeah but you're meeker than you would have been and if I'd thought of that I'd have said it to him you know you ought to be grateful I'm a Christian because I was a lot worse before then you know Uh, we we sense that these things at least are beginning to take shape in our lives or or at least we can say well I feel convicted over it you know at least it's starting I'm I'm moving in that direction And that's what Jesus is saying. And so we do want to be challenged by the essence of a real believer. But more than being challenged, we want to be encouraged because that's the purpose of a benediction. If I say, the Lord's Spirit now as you go, rest upon all of His people. And you will go out and say, am I His person? Am I His person? Instead of, boy, it's great to be blessed. You would have perverted the benediction. And it would be all about you and your nervous self-awareness instead of God's favor resting upon you. So you want to be sure that when you read the Beatitudes, the benedictions, that you read them for the favor that they really are. Well, let's take a look at them uh, because it is good to be reminded that in the state that God has us in this life, we actually are the blessed people. Let's look at the first one where he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, I want us to notice first of all that Jesus blesses his people. We're going to look at some things overall. I've kind of gone way off the board and haven't followed this outline, but let's see if we can follow it. And by the way, is the outline up here? Yeah. Jesus blesses his people. That's Roman number number one. That's what we've been talking about. Notice A, his blessing is gracious. It's gracious. We're not clobbering ourselves with the law of this definition, poor in spirit. Well, am I poor in spirit enough? Do I qualify? No, here's what Jesus is saying. When you receive Jesus Christ, you're going to be poor in spirit. It's not like you're trying to grind it out. Oh, I want to be more poor in spirit. No, you are poor in spirit. If you're in Jesus Christ, let me tell you why. How did you start to believe in Jesus Christ in the first place? Let me tell you why you did in the first place. Somebody told you that you're a crummy, lousy, no good sinner. Yeah, right. I got an amen on that, finally. Got an amen on the fact that you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We have desperate need to be saved. That's called poverty of spirit. You can't receive Christ without being poor in spirit. You finally come to the conclusion you're at the end of your rope. There's no way you can earn or merit your way into heaven. There's nothing you can do to get there on your own. It's going to be completely a rescue operation. When you're in the bottom of the well, a hundred feet down, you don't say, hey, somebody up there, watch me climb out of this thing. No, you say, send me a rope. That's what you do. You're poor in spirit. You're helpless. Somebody's got to help you. Now, in this case... They not only sent you the rope, they resurrected you from death and then brought you up. Didn't just send the rope, they sent somebody down on the rope and grabbed you, gave, breathed life into you and hauled you out of there. And that's salvation. It's called poor in spirit. You were rescued. And that leads to great humility. You know, I was just rescued. I was just captured. 
It was my idiocy that got me in the bottom of that well, and it was somebody else's bravery that pulled me out of there. I'm humbled. I'm poor in spirit. So you see, all these Beatitudes are very gracious. Now, secondly, um, notice that his blessing is real. We want to touch on this before we actually get to this first Beatitude, so I'm glad my outline caught me. His blessing is real. Now, why do I say real? Because you will read not only in... uh, uh, well, I can't think of his name. Um, but, you know, people will... Who was it that authored the the Be Happy Attitudes? Somebody help me with that. Schuler, Schuler, I think. Oh, is that it? Okay, thank you. Warren Grisby. Uh, Wearsby, yes. Um, I do know him. Personal friend of mine. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> uh, Wearsby, yeah, the Be, Be Happy Attitudes... Uh, now, there's something to be said for that because if you are a favored, uh, blessed person, you are generally happy, at least inside in here. But here's, here's the main point I want to make. These blessings are not primarily related to your reaction to what God has done for you. The, the benediction consists not primarily in what it does to you emotionally. The beatitude consists primarily of what God actually does for you. You with me? So if I say, if I say you know, the, the, the definition of blessed is happy, what I'm really saying is that the real point is it makes me happy. But, so if, if I say, uh, my father blessed me, well, and you say, well, how, how did he bless you? Well, he just made me happy. That's not really telling you what my dad did. My dad actually loved me. My dad encouraged me. My dad invested in me and committed himself to me. That's what he did. That's the blessing. You see what I'm saying? It's the objective work of the blesser. That's the benediction, not your reaction to it. So what I'm saying here is the Beatitudes reflect something real and gracious that God has done for you. Not, it's not doesn't primarily consist of the fact that it makes you happy. So it's not the be happy attitudes. It's the blessed, God's blessed be attitudes. So first of all, notice that we're blessed in the future. Because you'll notice in, in the, look at the uh, verse 4, 5, 6, so on. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied. They shall receive mercy and so on. It's future oriented. And it's true that we need to remember this. And I would say even primarily because a lot of our blessing and favor from God will not be realized until the last day. So a lot of our ability to receive a benediction and to receive His favor and to walk in it is to trust that what He says is waiting for us is real. That if He says He has a new heavens and a new earth waiting for us, if He says He has waiting for us Perfect bliss, no unmet need. Well, he's not describing me right now. I've got a lot of unmet needs. One day there are not going to be any unmet needs. And I walk in faith believing that, knowing I'm blessed. It's kind of like if your dad says to you, look, I've got a $10 million estate. You know, I've got uh, three kids, so I want each of you to have, you know, a little over $3 million. But I'm not going to give it to you until I die. I'm not saying that's good policy. I'm just making a hypothetical. So, so 
you, you walk, you know, and you, you're making your $65,000 a year, you know, and you're paying your bills, and you, you know, but it's, things are tight. But hey, you know, your dad's already told you he's committed to you. And you know he's not going to live forever. Uh, and so when, <laughs> when he goes, then you get $3 million. And you can, you can kind of bank on that. You can plan on it. You don't want to overspend. You don't want to get in trouble. You don't want to get in a lot of debt. But you don't have to, you know, you don't have to buy all the big things that you want to buy right now. And you don't have to even worry about it, providing for your children because you're just take that three million. I know what you'll do with it. You just pass it right down to your children. And so it's, you walk in that blessing. You have, you have the knowledge of something that's going to happen in the future. And that's, that's dominantly what you pick up in the text. And the reason for that is that you don't look very blessed. God's people are often not the richest people. God's people are often not the most influential people. Now, in our country, it, it, uh, we have an unusual situation. Uh, having been founded uh, with a lot of people who had sort of a theistic viewpoint and a very Christian-friendly viewpoint, uh, it's true that so many of our leaders and wealthy people are Christian people. But if you go around the world, it's usually the oppressed people who are the church. It's the non-Christian people who are in charge and oppressing them. If you travel the world, you'll, you'll see that all over the place. And it was true in Israel. The powerful people were just using religion to keep the people down. It was the weak and poor people who were the real followers of God. And he was saying to them, look, don't let this life define you because God has something for you in the next life. And it's real, ladies and gentlemen. It is real. And so we walk in the faith of God's promises to us in the future. But notice, secondly, that the first and last beatitude, the first one we're going to look at, says uses the present tense, is the kingdom of heaven. And in verse, uh, you get the same thing in uh, verse 10. Uh, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So there's also a present sense in which we experience His favor on us right now. Now you say, what is that? I mean, I can, I know, I can understand the new heavens and the new earth where, you know, the golden streets and the pearly gates and uh, everything anybody would ever want. You know, when kids ask me, for example, in Sunday school, you know, they'll, they'll always ask me about heaven. These are little first and second graders. And uh, last month, a second grader asked me, he said, uh, are we going to be able to play with our toys in heaven? And uh, I said to him, well, let me tell you this. When you get to heaven, if you want to play with your toys, you will play with your toys. Because when you get to heaven, you're going to do whatever you want to do. Really, Pastor? Whatever I want to do? And I'm thinking of all these wicked little thoughts going through my mind. <laughs> whatever I want to do? And I said, yes, whatever you want to do. Wow. And then I said, but now realize what you want to do now is probably not what you'll want to do then. But that's the way it is. 
If you wonder if there's going to be fishing or gambling, whatever you want to do. But I have a feeling you're going to want to do a few different things than your little wanter wants to do now. (laughs) So we can all understand when we get home whatever we want to do. But I'm not getting whatever I want to do right now. So how am I a blessed person? Well, leave your finger in Matthew 5. We are coming back, believe it or not. But turn over to Ephesians. And specifically, that would be page 2262. 2262. And look with me at these blessings. Ephesians 1, 3. Look at what the Apostle Paul says in writing to the saints in Ephesus. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Do you realize you can bless God? How do you bless Him? Interesting. How do you bless Him? All right? Number one, you love Him. Number two, you say positive, true things about Him to His face. That's called praise. Number three, you commit yourself to Him completely and invest yourself in Him. It's, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? If those things consist of blessing, that's what it means to bless God. You do the same thing. You can bless God. Love Him. Praise Him. Commit to Him. So, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But look at this. Who has blessed us? How has He blessed us? Notice, number one, the blessing is in Christ. Why? Because Christ is the blessed one. If we had studied chapters 3 and 4 in Matthew, we would have seen that Jesus was baptized and when He came out of the water, the Spirit came upon Him like a dove and the Father spoke and said, This is my Son. With Him I am well pleased. It's called a blessing. When you come into Christ, guess what He says to you? This is my Son. With Him I am well pleased. You can hear that for yourself because you're in Christ. Okay? So look, the only way to be blessed by God so that He becomes your Father who loves you, who sees virtue in you, and who invests in you is for you to get in Christ. The sooner the better. Do it right now. Do it today. Get in Christ and you will be blessed. Now, so He has blessed us in Christ and what what has He blessed us with? Look at this language. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Is that enough for you? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Now, He doesn't say every material blessing in the heavenly realms. That comes later. And there's your difference. I know I'm a stinking wealthy person. I know that there's an estate waiting for me that my mind cannot even get itself around. I know that I'm a man of favor and that one day all the cosmos is going to see it. But you can't see it now. I don't have it. I don't have, I have title to it. I just don't have it. So I walk in faith. Now, what is the spiritual blessing? The spiritual blessing is, first of all, the gift of faith by which I know that. The Lord has spoken to me and given me His promise. I know it. 
And that's a great spiritual blessing. It's like the blessing I had from my earthly father except multiplied infinitely. My earthly father gave me value by letting me know in a zillion different ways that he valued me. That was a great blessing. And my heavenly father has done the same thing. What else has he done? He has sent his spirit into my life. The down payment, the spirit is called the earnest or the down payment from God. So before we receive the inheritance, we get a down payment. We get an hors d'oeuvre before the main meal. And you have the hors d'oeuvre right now. You have the down payment of His Spirit. You have the empowerment to go into ministry by that Spirit. By God Himself, you have power to do His will and to do His work. That's a great spiritual blessing. We could go on and on. God has given you every, not some, Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Now notice, it's spiritual. Why is it spiritual? Because God is present with us spiritually. You cannot see His hands and feet. You cannot see His nail-scarred hands and feet or His side. One day you will. When you see Him physically, the blessings will convert from spiritual to spiritual and material. In other words, you are blessed in the realm of Christ's presence with you. So when Christ was here physically, He blessed people by healing them. When He comes back physically, He will heal universally, 100%, complete, forever, again. Now He heals spiritually because He's here spiritually. So we are healed, we are blessed in the realm in which He is present. And so that's the reason that we have every spiritual blessing as a down payment of the spiritual and physical blessing when we get our bodies back. You see, why would we even attempt to take in all of the material blessings when we don't have the material capacity to enjoy the blessings? We've got a fallen body. Paul says, my outer nature is wasting away. My inner nature is being renewed day by day, but my outer nature is wasting away. One day, your outer nature is not going to waste away anymore. You're going to have a new body. You'll be equipped And you'll have the capacity to enjoy all the material blessings that He'll give you that come with having the favor of God. So that's the blessing we have now. So you can see we have a future holistic blessing. We have a present spiritual blessing that is the down payment of the former. That's that's the way in which we're blessed. Now let's look at that first one, poor in spirit. Now we can see from the Scriptures that it is a perversion uh, when God's people are not poor in spirit or when they think that there's something else, when they think that they've completely triumphed and all is well. And this happened uh, to the church in Laodicea that John wrote about in Revelation 3. And here's what he said to him: He says, I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold, Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, here he's talking to the Laodiceans, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So it's a perversion for us to say that we're anything other than poor in spirit. And having become Christians... We're even more aware of our poverty of spirit 
because we realize of the greatness of God's inheritance to us, what it means for him to be our father. Look at the wealth that he stored up for us, but look at us here. Of course, we're poor in spirit. We're people who know that we're needy. And what happens to people like that? Here's what Jesus is saying. Theirs is the kingdom. I'm the king. And I'm saying that these people who are poor in spirit, who know how needy they are, they're the the heirs of my kingdom. Wow. Look at number two. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What's he saying here? Is he saying, you know, to be sad is to be happy? No. He's saying that my people are comforted because they know what they're longing for and they mourn over their own sin. True repentance involves, this doesn't make up all of repentance, but a part of repentance is a sorrow. And we're always living with this sorrow. And you know, the non-Christian seems to be so happy because they don't have to deal with conviction of sin. No, they just sin, don't feel convicted over it. But when you become a Christian, all of a sudden you find a larger capacity for sorrow, a particular type of sorrow and mournfulness that you violated the love of your father. Here's a father who's told you, I'm completely committing myself to you. I totally love you. And you have all that you need for life and godliness. And then you go out and spit in his face. And you, you have this profound sorrow. Here's what Jesus is saying. Those people who mourn like that, let me tell you something about those people. They will be comforted. Now, they were comforted in this life, but one day they'll be comforted in the next life because they will be given the capacity to respond to my love completely with no sin. Thirdly, he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And of course, this comes right from Psalm 37, where the psalmist David is saying, look at the meek of the earth. Look at the lowly of the earth. Look at those who are low. They're the ones who are going to be exalted. David makes this clear in Psalm 37. And David says in Psalm 37, they will inherit the land. Not the Greeks, not the Romans, not the Assyrians, not the Chaldeans, not these people who've invaded them with all their wealth and power, not the super military powers of their age. No, these poor people who get trounced on over and over again, they're going to own the land. Now let me tell you something. When you get to the new heavens and the new earth, it's not going to be the kings and the queens and the presidents and the the great rulers and the very mighty powerful people who are going to own the land. Let me tell you who the owners are going to be. It's going to be you. The meek, the ones who have lowered themselves to serve God and worship Him and who have been willing to divest themselves of everything here for the glory of God. They're the ones who are going to get everything back. You're a blessed man. And don't think for a minute that you've divested yourself to the disadvantage of your own estate. No, sir, you are the wisest investor on the face of the earth. You've divested yourself of these things knowing that there's this enormous inheritance awaiting you. You're the wisest investor there is. You're going to get the whole, uh, uh, the whole earth will be yours. Now, fourthly, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. He's saying, right now, you find yourself hungering, thirsting 
for righteousness and you find yourself coming up short and John Stott in his commentary talks about three types of righteousness. Legal righteousness by which you're accepted before God. Moral righteousness by which you walk in piety. And social righteousness by which you apply the law righteously to your neighbor. And you look at yourself and you say, I just, I just want more of that. I, fall, I seem to be falling short all along the way. And he says, look, you're going to be satisfied. That hunger and thirst is going to be completely satisfied. Gentlemen, I know this is hard to imagine in you know, your fallen mind and mine too, but one day you're going to have all the righteousness you need. You won't have to work at it. It'll be intuitive. You'll do whatever you want. And everything you want will be perfectly righteous and completely satisfying. Amazing. And everything that contributes to your happiness will also equally contribute to the happiness of the man standing next to you. You won't be taking away from somebody else to give yourself happiness in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth. Amazing. Your hunger and thirst for righteousness will be completely satisfied. And even now, What do we find now? Well, our moral and social righteousness we're still striving with. But we've already experienced something spiritually, haven't we? Our legal righteousness is completely satisfied. We already have complete acceptance before God. We are already guaranteed our place in heaven. Why? Romans 3, Paul says it. Nobody can justify themselves by the works of the law. Nobody can earn enough merit to be acceptable before God. But God has revealed a righteousness from heaven through faith in Jesus Christ alone so that through Christ I am righteous. I will be no more righteous when I reach heaven in the eyes of God legally than I am standing right here as a sinful and redeemed man. So I rest in that. That's one of the spiritual blessings. One day I'll have a material blessing. You'll actually be looking at Sandy and go, I didn't think it could happen. He's a righteous man. Look at that. That's amazing. I'll go, yeah, it really is. Look look at me. I can fly. You know, it's amazing. But I'll be no more righteous legally then than I am now. So even now, you see, my hunger and thirst for righteousness, legal righteousness, is completely satisfied. My hunger and thirst for moral righteousness is still, I'm still longing, and he's saying in the future you'll be completely satisfied. Now, this all has to do with blessed people in their relationship with God. But now look at the blessed people who serve their neighbor. The blessed people seek God, but the blessed people serve their neighbor. First of all, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Merciful people don't get on their high horse. Merciful people don't take advantage of other people. Merciful people give generously. They empty their bank accounts so that other people will have some. Merciful people are generally not the richest people in the world. If you look at the generosity scale in America, the highest percentage of giving is in the lower realms of income, generally speaking. Merciful people are generally not the richest people. But let me tell you something. Merciful people are going to be the richest people in the universe. And right now they're already rich spiritually. The spiritual blessings of God's favor they're already experiencing. And so I can remember one time when I was in uh, the sales business going to one of my customers and he asked me how much Presbyterians have to pay to get a, get a pew. I said, you know, that's not a bad idea. 
But I said, we don't pay anything for a pew. He said, well, how does your church raise money? And I said, well, we tithe. What's that? And I said, it's 10% of your income. He said, are you kidding me? That's a ripoff. 10% of your income to be in the church. That's how people see what you do. It's a total ripoff. You're getting ripped off. No, you're not. You're the merciful. Yeah, you got it. All right. Now, hey, that's really, hey, get off that preacher money. I don't want to hear more of that. Look, look, at the, uh, look at the sixth beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So pure in heart, if you read Stott, you saw that he, he suggests that purity of heart really means unity of heart. That is, there's one thing you want. And this is what David says. He says, uh, one thing I seek, that I may dwell in the presence of the Lord and worship Him in His holy temple. One thing. What's the one thing you want? Make it your Father. One thing. Those people who are seeking the one thing, man, look at the reward. They shall actually see God. The <clears throat> one thing you're going to want, and you may say, boy, I just, I'm so far from being a sanctified Christian. Uh, that's right. The one thing you're going to want is to see God. I'm telling you. That's what you're going to want more than fishing or gambling or sex or anything else. You're going to want to see God. And you're going to. And it'll be better than anything you've ever had in your life. Then notice the eighth, uh, seventh beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let me suggest there are several ways in which our hearts long for peace. We want peace with God. We want peace with our own conscience. We want peace with our neighbors, our fellow human beings. And we want peace with the cosmos. We don't want to be eaten by lions or bitten by snakes anymore. We want that over with. So we want total shalom is the Hebrew word. We want peace in every direction. So what does a peacemaker do? First of all, a peacemaker evangelizes. He shares Christ. Why? Because that brings peace between God and men, and it also brings peace within one's own conscience when they get the gospel of Jesus Christ. What else does a peacemaker do? He's not one who plays one man against another. He does not triangulate. He does not try to play off of their prejudices. So he gets their favor against this person and then gets his favor against this person, and he's the one that's sucking them both dry. (coughs) There's a you lawyers will forgive this, but there's a, there's a wonderful painting, an English painting, and it's entitled The Barrister. And with The Barrister, uh, here's the deal. You have a cow that's in dispute, and there's one person who's pulling on the head of the cow. That's the plaintiff. The defendant is pulling on the tail of the cow, and the barrister... <clears throat> Sorry, Sorry, Rob. Uh, Some people treat people that way. Not the peacemaker. Not the peacemaker. The peacemaker always mediates at cost to himself. He'll make himself a little more unpopular with this person and a little more unpopular with this person so these two people will be popular with each other. There's a peacemaker. All right? Now, thirdly, the peacemaker is one who's concerned about the cosmos. Peace in every direction. Peace in the environment. We've got 127 neighborhoods and 100 of them are in arrears, and 60 of them are in serious arrears. The peacemaker says, we need peace in every neighborhood in this city. There's the peacemaker. Look at the reward. 
uh, they shall be called the sons of God. Why? That's what God does. Lastly, blessed are those who are persecuted, and that's so important. We're going to pick it up next time right there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your favor on men and women and boys and girls. Thank you for telling us that you love us, that you see your own Son Christ in us, and that you're completely committed to us. And thank you for touching us in the very person of your own Son Jesus Christ who took on human flesh that he may take up the children in his arms and bless them. Make us blessers as we go. To everyone under our influence today and throughout these coming days, that we may enjoy every spiritual blessing from the heavenly realms right now with a sure and certain knowledge that one day we shall inherit it all. And we thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.